Welcome to the latest episode of the IIF Global Regulatory Update Podcasts. I'm Martin Boer, Senior Director of Regulatory Affairs at the Institute of International Finance in Washington, D.C. In this episode of the GRU, we focus on how the financial services industry is future-proofing, if you will, for cyber risk. With my guests and colleague, Justin Grice, a partner at McKinsey & Company based in Chicago. Future-proofing for cyber risk is a topic we're currently collaborating on together and touches on many interesting areas in technology, cybersecurity, and risk management. Justin is a leader in McKinsey's digital and analytics and risk and resilience practices with a focus on cybersecurity, cloud, technology strategy, and digital transformation. Justin designs, builds, and activates secure and trusted digital transformations to help organizations accelerate their mission and protect their purpose. So Justin certainly brings a wealth of experience and strategic knowledge to today's discussion. So Justin, it's great to see you. Welcome to the pod. I hope you've had a chance to take some time off over the summer and that all is well with you. Yeah, thank you, Martin. It's uh, great to be here. Excellent. Well, the topic for today's discussion is something that you and I have talked about quite a lot in the past. Mm -hmm. How should firms future-proof themselves now for cyber risks which are emerging associated with new technologies? What risks do you see over the horizon, for example, around quantum computing, uh, DeFi, AI, and Internet of Things? And what are the strategies that firms are employing in anticipation of those risks? That's really going to be the kernel of our conversation today. But Justin, before we look at the future, I wanted to ask you to briefly characterize, in your view, the current cyber risk landscape. Where do you see the biggest risks at the moment? And what advice are you giving to firms now? Yeah, Martin, it's a it's a great question. And you know, why don't we start just from the basic premise that I believe that cybersecurity creates competitive advantage when embedded into the organization's DNA up front. And we have to start from there because if unless you start from a point of positivity, it can really be a gloom and doom message. Now, let's dive in. Let's take a look at where we're what we're seeing and what we're telling our clients. We know that companies continue to transform and modernize, adopt new technologies, M mobile applications, connected sensors, artificial intelligence, cloud computing. These are all some of the technologies of the day that, uh, that companies are adopting and digitizing to towards. Consequently, that adoption has increased the attack surface for threat actors and, and cyber attackers. Just in, in 2021 uh, alone, we saw an 82% increase in ransomware-related uh, attacks, according to CrowdStrike in their, their global threat report. And that is, we, we predict that that trend is, is only going to go up. We also know that today's attackers are well-funded, highly organized, and well-trained cyber criminals. We sort of characterize their activity into four primary buckets e-crime, targeted attacks, hacktivists, and then those who we can't attribute. The, the interesting thing is that e-crime is the overwhelming majority at 49%, according to our CrowdStrike report, but it's going down. We also know that targeted attacks are going up uh, quite dramatically, and these are the attacks that are state-sponsored or cyber espionage or highly destructive attacks on companies and global organizations. 
that hacktivism, doing things just for a purpose to get the message out or to gain momentum around a cause is a relatively small amount, uh, around 1% of the attributable attacks. And that remains pretty constant. And the interesting part, the, the good news here, is that unattributed attacks are going down, meaning we're getting better at identifying who is attacking us. And so that's how, sort of how we characterize the, the threat actors who are, who are going after organizations. We did some research at, at McKinsey, and we know that, that companies continue to struggle to invest in cybersecurity at pace with the rising threat. In fact, in a report that we, that we published, only 10% of what we call the leading organizations are approaching a level of maturity of their cybersecurity program that they can begin to defend themselves. The remaining 90% of companies and organizations that we surveyed are struggling. And that is indicative of what we think the, the, the market is and the capability maturity of cybersecurity organizations today. And, and it's, it's, it makes sense. We're seeing all of the breaches, all of the attacks, and all of the continued disruptions. We know that across sectors, capability, uh, maturity varies. So banking and healthcare generally lead the way with, with the, the higher levels of maturity. And lagging uh, in, our, in our report uh, were, were TMT, consumer, and uh, industrials who generally failed to kind of keep up with the pace that they needed to to defend themselves. If, if we add more interesting news to the mix, we, we also know that the regulatory environment is heating up, which makes sense because we see the, these breaches and these attacks continue to increase with, with CERCIA, with the cyber SEC uh, disclosure rule, as well as global rules similar um, to, to those prompted all around the world. And that's putting a lot of pressure on boards, on management, on chief information security officers, IT professionals to invest in their program at greater pace and provide greater visibility, transparency around, around the, the state, the honest state of their, their program. And so this is the environment in which we are, are living today. I bring it back to the first starting statement, Martin, that we, we do believe that when embedded upfront, when designed effectively, security by design, and a part of the critical processes when undertaking a new initiative, a new program, a new area of investment, by putting the chief information security or officer or chief security officer at the table from the very beginning, you can make your products, your services more trusted, more resilient, uh, better designed uh, to embed security by design and increase trust and therefore increase competitive advantage. So that's that's the environment I think we're we're living in today. Those are great insights, Justin. Thank you so much. Those threats are obviously uh, big ones uh, for all industries, and as you. Uh, underscored getting those capabilities right and also uh, also meeting the regulatory requirements is super important. Um, I wanted to ask you, uh, as we look at the technologies that are being developed now, right, um, and if we look five years ahead, in what areas do you think those technologies will help firms in beefing up their cybersecurity? What's the good news on the technologies, Justin? Yeah, it's a it's a great question, uh, Martin. You know, we we did a a study uh, as we looked at how companies can future proof 
themselves, to take the steps today to future-proof themselves for tomorrow. We came up with 11 different cybersecurity scenarios that will fundamentally challenge organizations tomorrow. So I'm going to answer your question by, by looking at those challenges. You know, out of those 11, there are three that personally I think about and, and three challenges that I think need to be tackled to overcome this, this notion of future-proofing. And first, it's controlling the asset and identity sprawl. In the first question that you asked, we, we talked a little bit about increasing the attack surface. As we put new servers online, new instances of cloud, uh, new identities into the environment, new devices onto our network or even interfacing with our networks, more APIs, more interactions, we start to sprawl beyond this controlled perimeter that fundamentally creates backdoors and entry points into our environment. And I believe that controlling, inventorying, and understanding the assets, understanding the identities that are accessing our environment beyond our perimeter, beyond what we can, we can see, is really, really important. And that is going to be one of the key challenges for future proof of the tomorrow. This, the second one that, that, that I see is building scale through automation. We know, we've seen the power of automating formerly manual processes through SOAR, security orchestration and automation platforms. We know that you cannot throw the humans at this problem and make it go away. We've tried and then failed. <laughs> and in fact, we know that there's not enough security capabilities and security talent out there to do that even if we wanted to. So building scale through automation and looking at the routine tasks that a security operations center does, an identity and access management group does, that governance, risk, and compliance do every day to build scale into your cybersecurity program is going to be a key enabler for, for gaining control and building real capability. The third one is one that, that I'll, I'll refer to a few more times, uh, I'm sure, throughout the course of our conversation, but it's this notion of algorithmic trust and transparency. And it goes hand in hand with my previous comments around automation. When we think about automation on a continuum around predicted outcomes and unpredicted outcomes, so looking at RPA, uh, robotic process automation, around very, very defined scripted things, very defined inputs, defined processes, and defined outputs on, on one end of the spectrum. And on the other end of the spectrum, artificial intelligence, machine learning, trained and, and training the algorithm based on the data that gets fed to it. What I worry about is the knowing the tr the, what is causing the outcome and being able to reproduce those outcomes and shining a big spotlight on the logic uh, around algorithms used to make decisions. And we know that, that, that algorithms are going to be used and machine learning and artificial intelligence are going to be continued to be, to be adopted. We just need to make sure that, that those, that we understand what it is that they're doing and that we can reproduce those results and build trust in the outcomes that they are affording to us. So, I, to answer your question around the technologies, I think the, the big technologies that will help us to get a handle on future proofing, certainly the you know, asset management, identity management, automation, 
And then the notion of trust and transparency within the algorithms that drive the decisions for our tooling and technology stack is, in, in my opinion, going to, uh, going to be key. So there's definitely a lot of positive technologies there, Justin, as you are very well outlined there. And, and given that firms have, have a finite amount of resources, um, where do you think they should be prioritizing amongst these uh, technologies and in what way should they do that? Yeah, it's a great, great question, Martin. There are 10 recipes that we have put together, and this spans multiple different technologies. As we we've we've examined the market and examined the recommendations that we are making through the course of working with our clients, and these these recipes are the we call them the the, the no regrets moves that you can take today to future proof yourself against the challenges of tomorrow. And I'll I'll briefly go go down the list of of the ten just to cover off on some of these. But you know, the first one is investing in talent and empowering your, your, your leaders. We've seen that the skills uh, uh, that, that are necessary for on-premise cybersecurity are not what you need for the cloud and, the, and that the pace of the industry is moving faster than most organizations can keep up. So a formal investment in talent and empowering leadership to make decisions and stay on pace with where the market is going is absolutely critical. The second one is knowing your users and your, your nth party ecosystem. I mean, we originally, when we were thinking about this, we said third party and they said, well, what about fourth and fifth and on down the line? So we just put it as nth party ecosystems. It, and this is a combination of knowing who is in your ecosystem, inventorying them, knowing the identities of who they are, not just not just your end parties, but your employees, your customers, and really getting a handle on that. Uh, and then assessing the the supply chain uh, risk and the and the third parties, fourth parties, fifth parties risk within your ecosystem. The third one is defending your assets and your and your data. These are your typical crown jewels, right? These are the things that are so important. Consistently, we see this as a recommendation from uh, CISA and all of the regulatory bodies is you have to know your crown jewels in order to be able to defend them. This is critical as we think about quantum uh, computing and understanding what you are encrypting and what you are defending against and the level of protection that you're applying to your crown jewels. And this has traditionally been a huge challenge is getting a good understanding of what is within your environment. The fourth one is building trust by design. And we talked about that security can only be a competitive advantage if it's embedded by design and embedded into the processes. In this recommendation, we're talking about building security into products and services. And so the recommendation that we see here is building strong DevSec PrivOps capability. And I added the, the PrivOps as a nod to privacy because you, you, having these processes all connected as you're going through the product development life cycle, the software development life cycle, and embedding the security and privacy injection points along the way is, is absolutely a differentiator. And I would even argue an expectation of your customers. The fifth one is embedding deep within your business, in your products and your services. 
Traditionally, security organizations have struggled to engage with their business counterparts. And so things like BSOs, security champions programs, uh, security architects that help reach out throughout the organization, evangelize some of the, the amazing things that happen oftentimes at the center of the programs, but fail to make it beyond the walls of a security organization is really, really critical. As we go up the chain to number six is, is listening to your environment and preparing to respond. We, we, we've seen that the difference between something being a catastrophic event and a minor disruption is the ability to see those signals, hear those signals, and respond quickly. And so investing in monitoring, understanding the rules that are triggering, and this is also where automation can come into play, is triggering based on the rules and the, and the monitoring that happens within the environment to take action quickly, quicker than any single security operations center analyst could do on their own is, a, is another uh, great capability that we talk to our clients about pretty often. The seventh one, as we, as we um, go up the chain to, to 10, is planning for disruption and practice from scratch recovery. You've seen that, that ransomware has posed a fundamental and existential threat to our business operations and business continuity. Practicing from scratch recovery not just doing this in the form of tabletops, but performing crisis simulations and performing restore tests on a more frequent basis across every critical application is an eye-opening experience. Most companies that do this have some pretty um, interesting findings that they, what they thought they could recover from, they actually can't. And so going through those motions is really important. Number eight. Measuring and synthesizing and communicating in business terms. The um, amount of jargon that exists within a, a cybersecurity or a CISO's uh, toolkit is, is staggering. And so being able to assign dollar values, owners, equate vulnerabilities to business units uh, is, is <laughs> makes the difference between somebody taking accountability for an action step and somebody just saying, wow, these are a lot of numbers that, uh, that, that look interesting on a chart, but don't actually tell me anything or enable me to make decisions. Number nine is a convergence strategy, converge enterprise product, OT, and physical security. These systems are traditionally managed by, or we've seen them in, in different client environments, managed by separate organizations that oftentimes struggle with the same problem. So uh, whether it be a product group that may own security that manages its own tool stack, a manufacturing group that owns the, the OT environment that can never patch and upgrade, physical security that manages the badges, the access readers, the physical environment, the cameras, by converging all of these into a group that maximizes for synergy, you can create a more holistic picture of your uh, true cybersecurity and physical security and OT security environment. Now, it doesn't need to be the same person or accountable executive, but it does need to be uh, converged in some way and integrated in some way and served up to the right people that they can make decisions on it. And then number 10 is adopting a cloud-first mindset uh, and experiment with emerging technologies. We, um, we oftentimes talk to our, uh, to our clients, uh, CISOs, CIOs, and, and ask, 
are you performing you know experiments with with ai with uh quantum uh, computing with quantum cryptography are you launching any any new new initiatives do you, what do you have in the skunk works and and oftentimes they look at us and say gosh we're just trying to keep up with the threats that are coming at us every day uh and and so building a lab environment building innovation and experimentation environments with your architecture team and bringing the business to the table is is a great way to expose them early and start to get ahead of some of the threats so you know these are the sort of 10 kind of future proofing recipes that we we work through with our clients um and it's a this is by no means a, a comprehensive list, but as we looked at the recommendations we were making, many of them fell into uh, into these as themes. Thank you, Justin. Those are great insights and uh, recommendations, which will surely help uh, firms strengthen their resilience and their maturity against these uh, threats. I wanted to also ask you on the technology front, which technologies do you think will make it more difficult for firms to protect themselves, which technologies are actually going to help the adversaries, if you will, and will add additional cybersecurity risk going forward? You know, I, I think this is this is a question that you could that you could turn on itself and say any any technology that you introduce into the environment as new can be exploited if not if not secured up front. So let me let me answer this in a in a slightly different way. Five years from now, it's it's difficult to to sort of see what the what the threats are that will come at us just because the pace of technology moves so fast. But as I as I digested our uh, McKinsey technology trends and, and looked at some of the research behind it, the three things that really keep me up at night from a an attacker standpoint and a, and a threat vector standpoint is decision trust and transparency. Machines we know will continue to make more decisions. And so the question becomes is how do we hold them and their makers accountable for providing trust and transparency, whether it be AI or machine learning or various forms of algorithms? That notion of trust and transparency it becomes the target of attack for attackers. So how do we secure those algorithms? How do we secure the AI? And how do we ensure that they're producing predictable outcomes or replicatable outcomes? The next one is a, is a little bit is a little bit far off uh, or a little bit out there, but I, but I don't think it's too far off based on some of the innovations that we've seen. And, and it's the, the notion of machine human interface. So we, we see that connected devices that connect to us for medical purposes or life enhancing benefits things like pacemakers insulin pumps um heart monitors are are all now connecting to the internet either through devices or directly themselves the thing that worries me because we've we've seen that security oftentimes doesn't get embedded by design up front are when we start to interface with brain functions or with other parts of the body and ensuring that that is secured up front I, obviously it becomes a safety issue that is something that that i think about quite quite a bit is how do we test how do we embed those security requirements up front 
and how do we make sure that they are secured by design? The last, the last point that I think is a um, is, is is an interesting one is the, the notion of identity, authentication, and authorization. If, if you think about how we are identified and authorized to either be in a building, a facility, a bar, a restaurant. Or, or heck, even get our validate our credentials so that we can create digital identities. It's a picture, it's username, it's password, it's it's um, you know a a bill that that's sent to our house, and you know those those have have worked, but they have inherent vulnerabilities. As we move towards digital identity, those no longer are relevant. And so I think about the future of what identity is going to be, and we already have identity, unique identifiers embedded within our DNA. And if that becomes the form of identification, or whatever becomes the form of identification, biometrics, how do we ensure that we protect that at a level that it cannot be replicated and it cannot be spoofed uh, in the same way that Usernames and passwords and and traditional forms of authentication can be. So I, I think about the future of what identity is going to be and how we protect the you know that that entire infrastructure, not just in a company or an organization, but as a society. And I think that 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 is an area that is ripe for uh, investment and ripe for disruption. Those are great points, uh, Justin, and also uh, the interaction between humans and these new technologies and and where the opportunities are, but also the risks. One of the technologies that you mentioned earlier in our conversation was quantum computing. And obviously, we know that this is going very fast and that these computers um, are able uh, to do things in, in seconds and they're going to get quicker and quicker in what used to take years, right? So... What that also means is that the quantum computers can then decrypt faster. They can decrypt the encryption frameworks that we all rely on. And I was just wondering how you think that we can resolve that specific point, given that so many of our passwords are based on these um, encryptions. Yeah, it's it's such a great point, Martin. This is this is one that that is worthy of experimentation and innovation if an organization or a company doesn't have this in pilot right now. It, it, it's good timing because CISA and um, DHS and, and many of the government uh, agencies have come out with programs addressing uh, post-quantum cryptography. Everyone shares the concern. It's, it is now a commonly accepted fact that quantum computing will break traditional notions of cryptography. So the question is, what do we do? Do we just have longer, longer passwords, longer private keys? And certainly that may help in the interim, but it is, it is time to put in place stronger post-quantum uh, algorithms that and, and fundamentally change the way that we send public private key information uh, as we encrypt our data and communicate with, with one another. I, I would say the immediate thing that companies and organizations should do is inventory all of their, their cryptographic mechanisms within the environment. 
understand how they're doing it, what they're doing with it as, as a first logical step. Once, once those are inventory, doing a gap analysis as to how, what those mechanisms are for encryption and, and determining how far off, how secure those are. NIST has also published a um, guidance on the algorithms that they are, I, I believe it is still out for comment and it is not yet finalized, but they are going to standardize on for post-quantum uh, cryptography. And so starting to experiment with that and changing the way that systems are architected so that they can communicate with, with one another uh, to be quantum resistant is, is absolutely key. One of the one of the scenarios that we're, we're starting we're, that we're, we're seeing and that we know is out there is even though threat actors or nation state uh, actors who, are, who want to get their hands on on company IP um, cannot currently break or may not be able to break current encryption algorithms, they are harvesting the data, they are storing it for later use. And as advances in quantum computing uh, continue to uh, continue to to advance, they will break that encryption, get access to the data, and we should just we should just count on that. And so the time to act, and it, it when we started talking about quantum quantum encryption a few years back, it was a bit of a science fiction. It was far off in the future, but the time to act on this threat scenario is now. To start to figure out one, where where is our data? How are we encrypting it? How are we protecting it? How are they How is it our systems architected to communicate with one another? And then start to to create small scale experiments such that the environment can be replicated and tested for those quantum based attacks. That's great, Justin. Thank you so much. Quantum computing is obviously going to have major ramifications for all industries. And as you say, it's super important for firms and organizations to try to anticipate what those changes will be and to try to protect themselves now for these technological advances that are coming. We are almost out of time, so I did want to just ask you one more question, and I've really enjoyed our conversation, Justin. I wanted to ask are there any other effective practices that you think are particularly pertinent for, for organizations who might still be developing their cyber maturity to help protect themselves? Obviously, resources are, are more limited in some firms than in others. And which ones do you think should be prioritized? Which, which practices, Justin? Thank you. Yeah, thanks again for having me, Martin. I, I think these, these conversations are, are, are fantastic. You you know you are you are right. We've we've covered in the course of our conversation a, a whole bunch of practices, including the ten recipes that, that we talked about. I, I think I bring it back to the core. My core belief, my core assertion is that cybersecurity is key to building trust in the digital age. We we know that that cyber threats are going to continue to evolve, and and so will the measures. Uh, we use to protect ourselves, our organizations, our assets, our data, our customers. We're, and there are steps that that we can take today. And you know, the the two suggestions that that I that I will leave you with are one: know yourself and know the program that you that you have. Really dive into the details of what the program, the, the cybersecurity program, is. If there's one thing that 
the regulations are doing now, it's forcing boards and executive management to look carefully and look deeper at the programs that they are running. One of the big problems that we see is that whenever a chief information security officer or a CIO responds to a question, boards have a hard time interpreting what they're saying and whether that's good or bad, or they should be worried or they should be, you know, feel, feel comfortable. And so part of knowing yourself is knowing who you can go to, to get clarity on the answer to those questions. And there's two great suggestions that, that we are giving to boards. One of them is to establish a cybersecurity subcommittee of the board that is composed of people who, who are either former CISOs or former technology professionals who can ask the right questions, interpret the answers, and be able to ask those second, third, fourth, fifth order questions and challenge the, the, the CISO and what, what they are saying in obviously a very constructive way. That then gives the board the comfort that they're asking the right questions and, and getting the right answers that, that, that they would expect. The second recommendation is, is related, but a little bit different in that giving the CISO an advisory board made up of uh, peer CISOs or other, in, or other uh, retired CISOs or other industry professionals that they can go to to bounce ideas off of and get perspective uh, is, is, is a phenomenal idea. Now, this group can report can serve the same function or a similar function as a subcommittee of the board and report directly to the board based on what they're, they're hearing, or it can be separate and independent and just for the benefit of the, of the CISO. And so we, we see those as two really great ways to give the board and give executive management direct line of sight and insight into the goodness or areas of opportunity for improvement for cybersecurity programs. The second thing, um, the first one being know yourself, the second thing is forecasting the future and, and assess the impact of future trends to your program and its capabilities. Now, for any CISOs listening to this podcast, being, being able to sit back and think about the risks that are coming may seem like a luxury that you, that you may not have because uh, you're dealing with the risks that are coming at you today. And just being able to keep up is, is, is difficult enough. I completely acknowledge that. But really aligning to where the business is going and building those relationships to determine, hey, are we going into new markets? Are we building new products? Are we getting into uh, new areas? Do we have any new acquisitions on the horizon? Is a good way to help you forecast your future and figure out where the business is going so that you can align to it. And you know, there's lots of ways to come up with risk scenarios for, for, for cybersecurity based once you know that information. But one of the best ways I've, I've found to do it is to convene the business leaders who are leading up those initiatives and facilitate a workshop and come up with those risk statements and risk scenarios yourself. And obviously, there's more quantitative uh, aspects and different ways and techniques to, to do that as well. But that generates incredible amount of buy-in, ownership, so that it's not just security coming up with these are all the barriers to the things that you want to do and why you can't do them. It is joint development of those risk statements 
for where the business is going. So know yourself, forecast the future, and um, you know, I think those are those are great ways to uh, to future proof your organization and help companies prioritize this laundry list of things that um, are coming at security organizations nonstop. Those are excellent insights, Justin. Thank you so much. We covered a lot of ground today. I've very much enjoyed our conversation and I look forward to seeing you again, hopefully, when I'm next in Chicago. Thank you, Martin. Looking forward to it as well. Really appreciate you having me. Excellent. We thank everyone for listening to this podcast and hope you all stay safe and healthy. Please consider subscribing to the IIF Global Regulatory Update on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.